Last time we had been considering what I called the Reformation moment, and I uh, had preached from the central verse that Martin Luther had rediscovered in his search for a, uh, to be right with a holy God, and that was uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Today I'm going to continue the theme of the Reformation moment by preaching from a central verse that John Calvin used, and that we used this morning, actually, uh, in our worship, one that was used every Sunday, every Lord's Day, in the uh, worship of the Geneva Church that John Calvin pastored. So before we do that, let's read the text from Psalm 124, the entire psalm, and then we'll pray. Psalm 124, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let us pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us minds to clearly understand what you have to say to us from your word. Give us a will that desires to put it into practice through the work of your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that your Spirit would continue his work to enable us to actually practice your word, to become doers of it more and more in our lives. And Father, I pray that you would enable me to communicate your word clearly and accurately so that you might be glorified and your kingdom built. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So again, Romans 1 was where Luther first rediscovered the gospel, and around it a reformation of the church began, which we should all know by now if we don't. But if Luther was the founder of the reformation, he was by no means the only reformer of importance, and we probably know this too. Within a few years of the publication of Luther's 95 Theses, all of Europe was reading Luther. In fact, within a few weeks, much of Europe was reading Luther. Much to the Catholic Church's horror, by the way. Luther's writings were even being read in France, the Catholic stronghold of theology, and at the University of Paris, the center of Roman Catholic theology. A law student there at the university, or one of its colleges, that is, Montague, the College of Montague, began to read Luther and was attracted to what he wrote. This student had been trained to read texts in the new humanist way, which is interesting. I'll have to explain that in just a second. In their own right, looking at context and genre and in their original languages. So when we hear the word humanist, we shouldn't think secular humanist, not in the 16th century. We should think humanist as a methodology, in particular in this case, for reading texts. Reading texts in their own right, flat on, not through the lens of someone else, not through centuries of commentaries, 
but rather the text itself in its original languages. And John Calvin, of course, we know the name by now, had been trained to do this as a humanist. Inspired by Luther's theology, he began studying the Bible in this way and writing about his conclusions. He soon attracted the attention of the authorities, as we knew he would, in France, which was Catholic, thoroughly Catholic, and decided that it would be safer to leave France. So Calvin was a wise man, too. Much safer to leave. His name, of course, we already know, John Calvin. His intent was to settle somewhere where he could live the quiet, scholarly life, writing, thinking among his books. Not a bad life, actually. That was his intent. So he left France on his way to, we think, Strasbourg, though he wasn't completely settled on this. He happened to stop in Geneva on the way. His mistake, his mistake, but God's providence. And a reformer there named Guillaume Farrell had already heard about Calvin's gifts and found Calvin before he left. He sought him out, actually. And uh, here's how it went. He came to Calvin. He said, we have a reformation here in Geneva that we just started. We think that based on the way God has gifted you, we've seen your writing, we've heard about your ability to speak, we think you should stay and help us. I think God wants you to stay here and help us. Calvin said, no, I want to go to Strasbourg and be with my books and writings and study and a quiet life. That's what I want. Pharaoh, being the faithful person, said, John, I don't know whether he called him John or Mr. Calvin, Monsieur Calvin, I'm not sure. He said, um, if you don't stay here, God will never bless another thing you do in your entire life. That was John Farrell for you. Faithful John Farrell, I might add. So Calvin stayed for uh, two years. I'll explain that in just a second. But first, I need to, to mention that Calvin did have a definite conversion experience to the gospel. And let me read the only recording we have. There are actually two, one, one larger, one smaller, two recordings that he made of his own conversion experience. A rare thing for John Calvin he almost never spoke of his personal life, even though he wrote prolifically. We have his works in about um, 60 volumes, so he was a very prolific writer. Here's his conversion experiences recorded by himself. Every time I looked within myself, he recalls, or raised my heart to thee, so violent a horror overtook me that there were neither purifications nor satisfactions which could in any way cure me. The more I gazed at myself, the sharper were the pricks which pressed my conscience, to such a point that there remained no other solace or comfort than to deceive myself by forgetting myself. But because nothing better was offered me, I continued on the course that I had begun. <clears throat> then, however, there arose a quite different form of doctrine, not to turn us away from our Christian profession, but rather to bring it back to its proper source and to restore it to its purity." Cleansed, as it were, from all filth, but I, offended, but I, offended by the newness of it, was scarcely willing to listen to a word of it. And that is referring to Luther's writings at first. And I admit that at the beginning I valiantly and courageously resisted it. For as men are naturally obstinate and stubborn in maintaining the system that they have once received, I had to confess that all my life I had been nourished in error and ignorance." And there was one thing especially which kept me from believing these people 
that was, that were, was reverence for, for the church. But after I had sometimes listened and suffering being taught, I realized that any such fear that the major, majesty of the church might be diminished was vain and superfluous. And when my mind had been made ready to be truly attentive, I began to understand, as if someone had brought me a light, in what a mire of error I had wallowed and had become filthy, and with how much, how much mud and dirt I had been defiled, being then grievously troubled and distracted, as was my duty, on account of the knowledge of the eternal death which hung over me, I judged nothing more necessary to me after having been condemned, with groaning and tears, my past manner of life, than to give myself up and to betake myself to thy way, the way of Jesus Christ. That's the long version. The short version is much shorter, of course. God in his secret providence finally curbed and turned me in another direction. At first, although, although I was so obstinately given to the superstitions of the papacy that it was extremely difficult to drag me from the depths of the mire, yet by a sudden conversion, he tamed my heart and made it teachable, this heart which for its age was excessively hardened in such matters. So that's Calvin's conversion. He came to Geneva, already a believer. He stayed at Geneva two years to help in their reformation, and then he was expelled from Geneva after two years. Why was he expelled? He was expelled because he was meddling in people's business too much. That was the accusation made. What they meant by that was he was, found, he was discovering the sins of people and confronting them with those sins. They didn't like that. So they kicked him out, along with Farrell, by the way. Three years later, they called him back. They said, please come back to Geneva. We need you. Our Reformation is now getting underway in a better fashion, and we want you to come back. Calvin said, I'd rather die a thousand deaths than to go back to Geneva. Farrell came onto the scene once again. And he said, Calvin, you have to come back. Calvin said, no, I don't want to go back. And Farrell, of course, said, if you don't go back to Geneva, God will never bless another thing in your entire life. You have to go back. God has told me this. You have to go back. And he did. He remained there the rest of his life. He began the Genevan Reformation. He reorganized the church and its worship, which we see today in the Genevan worship service. He established an academy to train pastors. He taught a theology that was rooted in Luther but went beyond Luther to the whole Bible. And he established a particular kind of reformation that spread far beyond the borders of Geneva all the way to France, England, Scotland, Hungary, even we know Brazil at the time. There were three ministers that, who were Calvinists sent to Brazil. We don't know what happened to them, but they were sent. Much of that was due to the academy people coming from all over Europe to study there and taking their newfound theology back with them. And finally, of course, this influence of Calvin has come, came to America by way of the Puritans. And much of our evangelical theology today is rooted in Puritan thought, even though it's been somewhat diluted in recent decades. In any event, it was more, besides Calvinists, we tend to call it Calvinists, but it was more properly called Reformed, and it spread more widely than any other version of the Reformation, any of them, far more widely, even to America, such was the influence of John Calvin. But he was also a prolific preacher and writer, 
If we were to ask whether he had some central biblical text, it would be difficult to say because he wrote so much on everything in the Bible. But there was one that was used every Lord's Day in the Genevan service, and it seems to capture the totality of John Calvin's passion and his theology. And that's the verse we read just a few minutes ago. Our help was in the name of the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. We still use it today, and that's what I'm going to preach on today. John Calvin's central text, beginning with the entire psalm and moving down to the particular psalm itself, the climax of the entire psalm. First of all, the psalms in general, which we pretty much should know by now. We all know that the psalms were set to music in the days of David. Uh, Fewer know that Calvin once again used the psalms in his Genevan worship, by the way. We have the Psalter, Genevan Psalter, as a result of that, set, set, of course, to different music and a bit more loosely translated, but still it's the Psalter, the psalms themselves. But, of course, the psalms also not only express a range of emotions on the part of David and others, but also give us very important theological insights, particularly about God and his sovereign oversight and his intervention on behalf of his people. This is crucial to understand. We tend to, some people at least today, tend to look at the Psalms. They say, that represents my emotions. I can see and hear my emotions represented by David and others. True, you can. But we have to go beyond that too to gain the theological insights from that. David doesn't just spout his emotions, so to speak. He says things about God and about the things of God that we need to know even today that are crucial for us. And so we sing them and we preach them. Though they were written down in the context of David's kingship and Israel's kingdom, they're especially appropriate to apply to our situations today, I think. So let's now move to Psalm 124, look at the broad context of that psalm, and then begin to go through it a little bit at a time. In looking at the whole psalm, I will allow Calvin to speak to it himself, in large part through his commentary on the psalms. So he begins by laying out the overall thrust of the psalm, which I believe he perfectly captures. He writes this, The church, having been providentially delivered from extreme peril, David exhorts true believers to thanksgiving and teaches them by his memorable example that their safety depends solely upon the grace and the power of God. That encapsulates the entire psalm perfectly. That's his summary written at the very beginning of his commentary on Psalm 124. Now let me say a little word about sovereignty first, or providence, which is a, a term that's rather equivalent to sovereignty of God. We need to know this, and we need to begin to embrace it, I think. The sovereignty or the providence of God is that characteristic by which God rules over all things at all times, in all places, both directing, allowing, superintending, at all times, in everyone's life, individually and with regard to the whole creation. That's pretty comprehensive. It basically means that God is involved in everything going on in the world and in the universe. Everything from the smallest atom to the biggest 
constellation or solar system or whatever else we want to think about, and including human beings, every single human being, believers and non-believers, everyone and every event, and all of history also. That's a pretty big task, but that's God we're talking about. He's perfect. He's all-powerful. He's able to do this, and he does it for the benefit of his children at the same time. So, keep that in mind as we go through this. The sovereignty, the providence of God for his children. Each verse seems to confirm this insight, not just for Israel, but for us today. In all of our instances, we need to recognize that every time we, we see something happening. See the hand of God working. See God at work in our lives and in the world. We don't tend to do that in our culture. We're enlightenment children, if we didn't know that. Everything is about reason and explanations through natural causes. Even today, in our new age of sort of more spirituality, we still tend toward that. We don't think about God's hand being behind everything that occurs. We think it's got to be a natural cause of some kind. And if we don't believe it's just natural causes, we tend to act as if it were just natural causes. We've lost the concept of the sovereignty of God. This helps us to regain it, I think. And by the way, I think that's why John Calvin wrote it, even in his own day, to call his people back to that recognition of God's sovereignty in their lives for their good. So let's look at verse 1 first of Psalm 124. Verse 1, I'll read it again. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, and then he stops. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, clearly without God's intervention, things might have gone very badly for David and for Israel. He knows that. He recognizes that. David acknowledges the fact, and he calls on the people to say so. I think there's an application here right away. If God sovereignly acts on our behalf to save us from some catastrophe or some trial or tribulation, should we keep it to ourselves? We should say so. He calls the people of Israel to say so. Let Israel now say. Then in verse 2, he repeats it. The same thing. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, and then he goes on to say what would have happened if the Lord had not been on their side. What's he recognizing exactly? That the Lord alone is powerful enough and cares enough for his people to save them from their trials. And so they should say so publicly. That's the bottom line here in this part of the text. And then in verse 2, going past that, the first part again, which he repeats from, the, from verse 1, what is it? What would have happened otherwise? He recognizes full well what the fate of Israel and of David himself would have been. Whatever, this, whatever the situation was, we don't know exactly what the situation was here. But whatever it was, and maybe that's the reason God inspired to be written this way, so that we wouldn't focus on one event, but see it more broadly for anything that occurs to us. It says, when the people rose up against us, whatever that means, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us, and over us would have gone the raging waters. 
Well, whatever it was, it's pretty significant. And it threatened them with death, apparently. Um, It would seem that uh, David, inspired by God, repeated these two phrases for emphasis. And there is no question it needs to be emphasized. What would we do in our, on our own apart from God? What would we do on our own apart from God? Let me repeat that. What could we do to save ourselves from our trials and tribulations or any other catastrophe apart from God? The answer should be nothing. We're unable to do that. Whatever comes to us would overwhelm us, would destroy us. It's impossible. Whether spiritual or material, it would destroy us. We could not stand against it. We don't have the ability as human beings to do that apart from God's providence, his sovereignty. And Jesus himself repeated that, by the way. Without me, you can do, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a broad application there, I think. That would include the spiritual aspects of our lives and also the material. The entire sweep of Scripture makes it clear as to any and all events and situations that God alone is able to deliver. So why then is it emphasized? The answer is this, we forget. It's that simple. We forget. Even as Christians, we forget. And why do we forget? The answer, I think, is pretty simple there too. Because we are human. We're weak. We're easily distracted and drawn to what we think other humans or institutions can do. If you think about the substitutes for God in the past 300 years that have been brought forward in culture, you could see this right away. We've elevated science. We've elevated God, uh, the, the state. We've elevated other people in our therapeutic culture today. We've elevated anything but God to the status of the one who can deliver us from our troubles. That's our problem. We're weak and sinful people. Well, in the last phrase, we see the particular kind of threat against God's people. When people rose up against us, we don't know again explicitly who these were. It might refer to outside threats, external threats from other nations, Babylon, for example. But regardless, the threats were overwhelming, as I just read in verses three, in verse three, make clear to us. And here in verses three through five, David uses very vivid language to describe the reality and the eminence and the danger of these threats. Notice the words he uses, swallowed up, that is destroyed in some way, some cataclysmic way, swallowed up. Anger kindled against them, the disposition of their enemy. The enemy didn't just uh, have this uh, dispassionate view of them. The enemy hated them, whoever they were. Swept away, again, the idea of destroying them utterly. The torrent over us and the uh, idea of the raging waters both connoting a violent end, not a peaceful end, but a very violent end to David and Israel. So taken together, the point is that if God had not graciously and mercifully intervened, all would be utterly and completely lost for David and for Israel. And the application is again clear. God intervenes on our behalf And in countless ways, and even in life and death situations, all the time. Sometimes we don't really know, I would admit, because it doesn't happen to us. 
and we didn't know what didn't happen. We may be driving down the road and we missed being hit by someone. We didn't see it, we didn't know it, but God was intervening on our behalf. These these kinds of things happen all the time with God who is sovereign and intervenes in the world on our behalf. He's not a God who's just up here watching us, contemplating his navel, so to speak, as people used to think about Platonic God. No, this is a real, personal, eminent God who helps us in our time of need. But now here's the question, the ending part of the text. How should we respond to God's providential care as Christians individually and as the church corporately? Here we'll encounter the central verse again that makes the answer emphatic, I think. But first, let's look at verse 6, which is also a response. Look at what verse 6 says in Psalm 124. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Well, um, blessed be the Lord. That's pretty straightforward. We ought to praise and thank the Lord for his providence toward us. Why? It would seem that the rest of verse 6 is just using different words to say the same thing as verses 3 through 5 because we would otherwise be utterly destroyed. And that's partly true, but there's more to it even than that. The Lord did not give David over to his trials and tribulations. Um, he didn't, but why? Because that would because he was gracious and merciful. The Lord had every right to do so, to give him over to whatever was there to destroy him. We're completely undeserving of the grace that we get from God. And hopefully, thankful that in mercy, we do not get what we do deserve, which is death. That's the point I think he's making there. Besides the fact that he was delivered, the reason why he was delivered, because of God's grace and mercy. This part of the verse then emphasizes God's character of faithfulness to his children, even in the face of our unfaithfulness. Even while we are unfaithful, God remains faithful in so many ways, all the time. Then we move to verse 7. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. This expresses the, the, the utter surprise and joy that David feels, and, and the people of Israel should have felt, and hopefully did, at thinking they were about to be destroyed and finding, no, we're not destroyed after all. We're saved. It's a feeling of joy that God has delivered them. Each part of it could be ended with an exclamation point. Each part of this verse, the final phrase brings the sentence to a point. We have escaped. Can we say that as Christians? Every time God works on our behalf, we have escaped our trouble because of the Lord, not because of our own efforts, not because of someone else. There's no other satisfying explanation, and David knows that. To put it another way, when God delivers us, it is a miracle, a supernatural event from God. Now, we're in the habit of saying things like, a fireman saved me, or an EMS worker saved me, or a good Samaritan saved me, or I did something on my own that saved myself. We're in the habit of saying that. In one sense, that's true. They do. Those are the instruments God uses to save us. But we ought to realize that ultimately, behind all of that, 
is the providential, sovereign working of God who directed and caused the good result that occurred. So once again, we have to go back beyond the material causes, the immediate causes, and see God's hand, recognize God's hand at work on our behalf. The human Savior is to be thanked, and we should thank them. But God is to be worshipped in all of this, to be seen ultimately as our Savior in all things. And now the final verse. Let me read it again for us. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The phrase we just recited, that's recited that was recited every Lord's Day in Geneva, that's often recited every Lord's Day in Reformed churches all over the world. What can we say about it? This is a statement of thanksgiving for the whole church as well as for each of its members. The thanksgiving is rooted in a crucial truth about God. He is the creator of all things. He is the one who made heaven and earth. We are the created beings in need of his help because he alone can help us. Let me read what John Calvin wrote about this text, about verse 8. Let him speak again. David here extends to the state of the church in all ages that which the faithful had already experienced. As I interpret the verse, he not only gives thanks to God for one benefit, but affirms that the church cannot continue safe except in so far as she is protected by the hand of God. He's right. His object is to animate the children of God, to put life into their worship, with the assured hope that their life is in perfect safety under the divine guardianship. The contrast between the help of God and other resources in which the world vainly confides, as we have seen in Psalm 27, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God is to be noticed that the faithful purged from all false confidence. False confidence. I've talked about that already. May betake themselves exclusively to his care. And depending upon it, may fearlessly despise whatever Satan and the world may plot against them. Be bold in going forth as a Christian and living your Christian life for the glory of God. You can do that with confidence, knowing that God is in control. The word, the phrase we like to use. The name of God is nothing else than God himself. Yet it tacitly conveys a significant idea implying that as he has disclosed to us his grace by his word, we have ready access to him, so that in seeking him we need not go to a distance or follow long, circuitous paths, nor is it without cause that the psalmist again honors God with the title of creator. We know with what disquietude, that is uncertainty, our minds are agitated till they have raised the power of God to its appropriate elevation, that the whole world being put under it, under it, moment under its moment, his power to the creation of the world and then withdraw it. But he continually demonstrates it in the government of the world. Moreover, although all men freely and loudly confess that God is the creator of heaven and of earth, so that even the most wicked are ashamed, are ashamed to withhold from him the honor of this title, yet no sooner does any terror present itself to us than we are convinced, convicted of unbelief 
in hardly setting any value of whatever upon the help which he has to bestow. So Calvin has both convicted us and given us the solution in commenting on verse 8. It implies that he is able to save us from any and all enemies of any kind, spiritual or material. Calvin made that clear. That we can have confidence in living our Christian life knowing that that God is that sovereign God that will protect us in all events of our lives. It's imperative that we are persuaded of the truth of this thanksgiving. That's the point. And Calvin, and then David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is making this imperative that we embrace this truth, that we not just think of it as theoretical, that we begin to embrace it now so that when troubles come, we're ready to rest in it when they do come. And they will come. Without a doubt, they will come. Are we ready for them? As God's children, we certainly ought to trust in him that he will act for us. We should have this verse firmly and indelibly etched in our minds. And perhaps that's why Calvin used it every Lord's Day. Maybe that's the reason. We don't know. So those in his church and those who use the Genevan service form would not be allowed to forget its truth. If Luther focused, honed in on the single doctrine of, self, of justification by faith alone, which was crucial for the Reformation, Calvin expanded it to the comprehensiveness of the sovereignty and the grace and mercy of God in all things. Maybe that's why he used it. I don't have any idea. But regardless of why he uses it, the fact that he does use it, the fact that we see it in here, almost every Sunday that I've been here we've used it, and many of your churches who are visiting may use it too, I don't know. But there it is for us to reflect upon. Through the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, we see that he in all things, the maker of heaven and earth, is able to save us from anything that comes our way. May we rest in him in those events and go forward actively as Christians. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church if we go forward like that. Let's pray.